episode eight of uh, From Red to Black, a Homicide Life on the Street podcast. This is Joe. I'm Daniel. This episode originally aired, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, on Friday, March 24th, 1993, on NBC. Quick um, synopsis. Building is checked for air quality, and later G is outraged when the asbestos removal teams come in without his knowledge. While investigating the death of a gang member, Bolander and Munch use an electrolyte neutron magnetic test to break a boy into giving up the guilty party. And as the episode title suggests, this is about smoke, as in cigarette smoking, because Felton and Pendleton can't understand why their partners are trying to quit smoking again. If it's written by Tom Fontana and James Yashimura, directed by Wayne Ewing. And Joe, you wanted to make a comment about Mr. Yashimura, one of the writers. Oh, yeah. Well, that's while I was watching this, and it kind of the through line through this episode about cigarette smoking, when we watched the, uh, the making of documentary, which was in the original release of the the box set of the DVDs um, I I felt like in every time they went to him James Yo- Yoshimura was a cigarette so I wonder if this was something that was like a conversation that happened in the writers room that kind of bled into the show as I know that happens oftentimes on shows um, but uh, but yeah that was just because I, I I guess I kind of sensed that about the the writers of the show. And, and again, I would say for, it, it was a different episode in a lot of respects. One is the theme of smoking really permeated, uh, excuse the, you know, uh, the, the joke there, but it really permeated the episode. Right. Whereas normally there's not that much of a theme, but man, it was smoking from beginning to end. In fact, the opening scene is when Bo realizes that Kay has stopped smoking. But if you're observant at all, you see everyone in the scene is smoking. Right, It's yeah. absurd. Yes, there's a lot of that. Um, this is this is definitely one of the wackier episodes of the show that we've seen where that kind of like bends the reality. For such a gritty and realistic show... It's um, a good point. It, this one definitely had these like minute touches of strangeness, one of which, yeah, in that scene... Comedic effect. Everyone is smoking cigarettes, lighting their cigarettes with uh, uh, the... And it's people kind of way in the background, (laughs) too. It's every single person is smoking. Yeah, we're almost like seeing the world through Kay's eyes, right? Rather than seeing it what it must have really been like uh, to have all those bystanders by there. And even people working on the crime scene, right? We're lighting each other's cigarettes. Yes. Um, And yeah, that's something like Kay is kind of uh, acutely aware of. Um, in the opening of the uh, of the episode, and also even beyond just smoking for this episode, kind of like a larger theme that hits on this, uh, like with the asbestos tie-in, kind of like toxic. Um, I want to say inhalation, but uh, yeah, but just kind of like you know disease, airborne disease that is you know affecting. I, I didn't even catch that connection. You're you're right. You're hundred percent right. So um, yeah, so we let's we already started talking a little bit about uh, the the K storyline, and so there's there's a couple things at work here because towards the end of the episode, there's uh, K and Bo's storyline uh, that follows this murder from Union Square, kind of ties in with uh, Frank and 
uh, Tim. Yes. Towards the end, because they're they're gonna find someone who I guess they already have a case that they're working on, or they, they've got a, a lead on someone that um, uh, Tim and Frank are looking for. But um, in the beginning, I guess we can, let's walk through that through that storyline first. Sure. Um, yeah. So they have that uh, the murder there, and then. That's really it for a while. What else? When do, when do we go back to them? Oh, when she's talking to Frank on the steps about her budding relationship, right? Do we, I don't think I met, I skipped over anything. No, you there. did not. Yep. When she talks about Ed Danvers. Yeah. And and Frank says, sex and money are the only two things more powerful than, than, s- tobacco. than tobacco. And so uh, Kay kind of like overshares and gives him more than he bargained for. The point that it like creeps him out and bothers him. And then as soon as he, like, bails on that conversation, she's like, I'm just screwing with you. Like, just But then mind. she says, well, maybe I wasn't. So what do you think? She was or she wasn't? I think I think she was sending a very clear signal of, like, hey, if you want to talk about this, like, or, or think about what, you, what you're asking me, because you might not want to know. Yeah, because um, she definitely overshared. If she was telling the truth, <laughs> she way overshared. I personally think she was joking yeah. the whole time. Yeah. And Frank was definitely aghast. He was like, he was uncomfortable. Yeah, but I think he he's bringing up an excellent... Obviously, the reason that she quit smoke. I think for sure it's this relationship with Danvers. Okay. Um, because, I wonder too, when we get into Bayless, you know, what his kind of reason is. Um, but, yeah, I wonder if we could, we've, we're going to see in the next couple of episodes. And we know that we're getting towards the end of the first season... But I wonder if we're going to get to a point where we'll see the other shoe drop on this, and if she comes back to smoking, or if she's able to, to we'll stay have off. to we'll have to pay attention. Yeah, you know that's like a, another thing. I'm I'm just thinking about it now. Like I'm sure not all of these actors smoke cigarettes in real life. In real life, most of the time they don't, and they give them these fake cigarettes, yeah, like to lettuce smoke. or whatever. Um, so I wonder if that's also kind of inconvenient for the actors that maybe they have to write an episode to address the fact that all these that people are smoking. They're gonna quit. Yeah. yeah, right. Just be more convenient for them. Um, all right. So where where are we? You're still talking about Kay. Yeah. And Bo Lander. Well, let's 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 I mean, leave them. Me. Not not Kay and but Kay and Bo. Yeah. Let's leave them where it is now because we're gonna catch up okay. with them by talking about. The Frank and uh, Bayless story here, which kind of has a lot of the similar beats in the first half, uh, except that um, uh, Tim is not quite as resilient as Kay is. Uh, so Tim and Frank are at a at a diner, and Frank goes to light up a cigarette or whatever, and asks for Tim for a light, and Tim kind of confesses like, "Oh no, I don't have one. I'm you know I'm quitting. I've quit smoking." He has the patch and everything. And and Frank is kind of sympathetic. For Frank, very sympathetic. He's yeah. like, I'll go outside, this and that. And it's so funny because Bayless kind of forces Frank to light up in front of him. And he even uses his hand yeah. to wash <laughs> the cigarette yeah. smoke into his own nostrils. See, I don't even think Frank was being gracious or being nice about it. I think Frank knew there's nothing that... Tim wants in the world right now than to smell you the might cigarette. Be right. So he's like putting it off like, oh no, I will do the polite <laughs> thing here, knowing full well what he actually wants is... Because you make a good point. Bayless is nowhere as committed as Kay. Right. No way. Yeah. He's weak. Yeah. 
Um, so then uh, the two of them, the two quitters, kind of meeting with G, where they say, we want our, like, our own non-smoking section of the precinct, which, like, G just sc- scoffs at. Like, he's not even going to entertain He it. just laughs them off. Yeah. And, like, like, compliance saying that you need to give this... And, like, so G makes the joke of, like, all right, well, I'll give you this, uh, the coffee room, or the break room. And it's like, of course, like, that is the place that people, need, you know, will smoke the most. So. Yeah. Um, you, you knew that was never going to happen, so. Yeah. Um, so then that brings us kind of towards the end of the episode where uh, Felton gets the call ab- about the suspect. Now, this whole, the whole storyline, very little about the actual murder that they're solving, which, again, you know... I think when this show is its best, as we've said this before in the past. Many times. But uh, when it focuses on just the the relationship and the dynamics of the ro- the officers in the room. Um, but, like, yeah, almost nothing on this murder um, until uh, Bo gets the phone call that they have a location that this suspect hangs out at. So they head over there, and there's, like, a, a nice little conversation before that where... Um, Frank and Bo Felton decide they're going to drive together, and Kay and Tim are going to drive together. Right. So the smokers can yeah. with the smokers, and the non-smokers with the non-smokers. Yeah. Is it, like, great... Uh, I love that, that not only are we having the kind of the storyline and the conflict in this episode being addressed by that, but also the larger conflict of Bo Felton does not get along with Frank. That's right. But now... We've and in the past we've seen like glimmers of common ground and them kind of working things out and now they're united in this you know smoking great scenes where they just go back and forth between the two cars where the smokers and the non-smokers are and they're each talking about smoking in different ways and it's kind of comical and they're very short and they kind of bounce back and forth back and forth yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, towards the end of the episode. And they're like, this is, again, this has to have come. I feel like this, because it's it, it seems like so gratuitous for these people to smoke smoking this like philosophically and just kind of like waxing poetically about it. Um, and then, yeah, cutting back to Kay and Bayless. And you can see like Bayless is still crumbling. Uh, finally gets up out of the car. And- In the sexual way talking about opening a pack of Winston as well. And he gets himself so excited, he doesn't tell Kay what he's going to do, except that he's got to go talk to Frank. Yeah, she knows. And, she but totally she knows. knows. Of course. Um, yeah, and all throughout, too, like, Kay is, like, they're both, like, munching on, they had a... Pretzel, celery. Uh, yeah, celery. All the, the the tricks they say that you can use to quit smoking. Um, but, yeah, uh he, so he leaves the car, runs over to Frank, finally gets the cigarette from Felton. Uh, Frank goes to light it, and as he lights it, their suspect books it out of the bar. And and Bayless has to throw his cigarette away and, anyway. And, like, we know that Bayless is, like, you know, perhaps he, to success, to excellence. And, like, he just, like, stands there watching this guy run for a beat. Where he's <laughs> just, like, totally caught off guard. He thought he had, you know, finally was going to smoke the cigarette and... And it didn't work out. Um, so yeah, that that whole like tra- trajectory again, like such a strange uh, storyline to follow through. Kind of mixing two stories together. 
having a lot of fun with the characters. It's almost purely comedic uh, in the way that this story kind of fits in with the, the show. I, I agree. And the more I think about it, you're right. This had to be driven by one of the writer's struggle with cigarettes had to be yeah so it was Tom Fontana was the writer and James Yoshimura yes correct and um, uh, I wonder if Tom Fontana didn't write the Bolander Munch story in this and then if James Yoshimura and I don't mean to I don't mean to if he ever hears this James I'm not saying that you're just uh, uh, totally hung up on cigarette made and, and it just seems like it probably fits into you know whatever narrative I built in my head so uh, let's get to the, I think, probably the coolest, the most interesting and funnest story in this. Well, funnest and probably most deep uh, is the Munch and Bolander story. Yes, the suicide. When they say, hey, this is not a suicide, right away, jokingly, I think, they're yeah. like, hey, this is, you know, this is the poor kid killed with the baseball bat. Yeah. Well, it starts in that barn, right, in the very beginning where they have the hanging suspect. Yes. And they deduced that it was a suicide from a horse. They were sitting on the horse and then... Right, and the horse took off. Yeah. And we saw that character who... do We we don't know his name, right? No, no. I'm not sure, but he's going to come back to haunt everyone in that show in a bad way. Yeah, and you can I can definitely see now... Now that we're paying such close attention to this show, I see where they're planting these seeds about that character's kind of ascendance to... To power and becoming a real thorn in Giordello's side. Because right now he was very nice to them and smiled, and there was no animosity at all. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry I can't remember his name. Uh, and he is the officer that comes into the barn in, hat, in uniform, carrying, right. leading the horse, I guess. That's right. And we know that that character is going to come back uh, and become this shift, shift supervisor for the uh, opposing shift. I don't think that's what he becomes. No? I think he becomes Barnfather's kind of equal. But does he become both? Is it we'll like a see. trajectory, like we're, first one? And we're we're going to find out. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he definitely, he's a command. As soon as I saw him, like like a muscle tensed up in my arm. Same I thing. Like, I, I dislike him intensely. And I don't even <laughs> remember why at this point. Yeah. Um, so continue on with Munch and Bolander's... Um, yeah, so they also, they have like this weird kind of through line through this episode about Elvis that they're talking about, uh, Munch Bolander about music, and uh, about how he doesn't like country music, and then Bolander kind of offers that he's an Elvis fan, and Munch, of course, like, this is like... It's know, funny to Munch. Yeah, right, like vultures to the carrion, like just picking at him the whole episode about it. You know, then they get to meet the victim's father, Mr. Howell who's really a jerk. And he says to Munch, are you a Jew? And I don't know, Munch is, Munch did not find it, sometimes he finds things funny, he did not find that funny yeah. at all. Um, he really did not find well, it Well, so almost like a shrine or something? There's it was weird. These... There was religious symbols and... And he was reading a Bible that opened to a page or whatever. And then he's even almost dressed like a priest. He's wearing all black, totally bald. Very so strange. Just, yeah, very, a super striking individual. And then, of course, you know, he's talking to homicide detectives about the death of his son. And he is just, you know, again, it, he's more concerned about whether or not... Munch is Jewish than the news that they're delivering. 
<clears throat> and it, it, it's funny how they get into a big conversation about Bolander's wife. Um, and he asks him about Dr. Bly. And Bolander gives him... But I, I think I have written down here that uh, Bolander, uh, yeah, Bolander says, I regret everything. Yeah. And this is the start, I mean, which, which is a very kind of depressing arc here for Bolander because this Elvis thing doesn't go away. Right. And by the way, when Ender goes on and on about his wife, Munch doesn't bite, which is really unusual. Yeah. He does at all. Bolander goes on and on, how long he was married, what happened, and Munch is silent. I didn't did not pick up on that, but yeah. He doesn't say anything, which yeah. is really weird. Yeah, for Munch to not want to quip back or um Yeah, great that's a great uh great call. So um I guess I'm looking through notes here. I, I think the next scene is when um, the, the the young oh the girl comes neighbor in. I guess Anna Prager comes in and says she was the victim's friend yeah and she saw someone with him so she kind of gives them a lead. Two things I noticed: Munch excuses himself right away. And Bolander does a great job. So is Munch new? He wouldn't be good, and Bolander would be good. Explain it. What yeah, did you I don't make know. out of that? I, I don't know. That's interesting. You know, in the conversation that they had just had, where the question that spurred the answer, I regret everything, was do you regret not having kids? Oh, so now okay. here he has a chance to talk Very to good. a kid. I didn't get that, Jim. So maybe that's what what he's... All right. Makes that that makes perfect sense. I did not remember the two conversations. But does it though? Because like I feel like for no, Munch it makes sense. For but if Munch is like you didn't, you know, Bolander never had children. Maybe he's like, well, then you shouldn't talk to a kid. Let me do it. I, mean, I, would, I yeah, but it seemed to me that there was regret that he didn't have kids. Mm. And I think Munch knows. I mean, we know how Munch is. Is Munch going to be good with the little kid? Probably not. Yeah. Okay. Right. And Bolander was tender, awesome, knew just how to handle her, and uh, with her. Yeah. Great job. Yeah. Um, and then so they get a they get a lead from that. They get a description of the person, and then they um, are able to track down. And they get into the box with one of like the like the dumbest uh, suspects that we've ever seen on this show. Agree. This kid and of. So this is a storyline that you said is inspired by... True events. Yeah. It's an old trick as cited in David Simon's book. If you wanted to get his book called Homicide Life, A Year on the Life of the Kid. If you're listening Streets, to this podcast, we should, or we should assume you've, right. you're aware of this book if you have not read it yet. On page 204, he was writing his book about the homicide unit. Use of this trick was the subject of controversy in Detroit. So this is based on... <laughs> Something real, which is, makes it even funnier. Yeah. Yeah. So they basically, they trick this rube into, into thinking that the photocopier is, what is it? What's the electronic, yeah, some yeah. some crazy. A electrolyte neutron magnetic <laughs> tester. Yeah. And then, of course, they build up all the fear of it. All the terrible things are going to happen to you when you're 
uh, subjected to this test, but that it's basically like a lie detector test. And so they... Let, let me interrupt, because before then, I don't know why, Munch goes off on this kid. Yeah. And just, like, berates him, calls him a lying liar. And I really thought that Bolander was going to step in to be the good cop, but he doesn't. He just goes into the test. And I don't know what the strategy was, but they just, he just rags on this kid. Yeah. Really, several times just says, you're a lying liar. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think this is the first time we see Munch in the box. Might be. I don't think in the show we've seen him... Uh, interrogating anyone yet, um, but yeah, he totally like immediately just kind of gets right off on the kid. Yeah, he gets right in the kid's face, um, and the kid is tough at first, but then when they start to administer the test and talk about the bad effects it can have, and Bo Felton comes in and says he's going to leave the building, yeah. <laughs> and they talk about what it might do to your sex organs. And everything else, the kid is believing it totally. So I, I wonder, too, if there's not shades of that that theme from previous conversations about their relationship with kids. Munch doesn't have any children, does he? No. no. So maybe that's Munch not knowing how to talk to a kid, whereas Bolander steps up and does, you know, is able to, like, sweetly coerce this kid into giving a confession. And don't forget he handled Dr. Bly's son rather well who was a complete jerk uh, job with him yeah right yeah he's got the touch he's got the touch um, so yeah so they totally fake this kid out and load uh, the printer with words that say true <laughs> true and false, false so that they know the third question is the one to ask you know the, the answer that they're going to get the lie to um, what was funny to me was knowing that this was something that a police department has done it would be so funny to see a moment where it didn't work <laughs> you know, like if they had someone who actually was innocent and like, what are you talking about? Right, right. Yeah, I'm yeah. innocent. This thing is crazy. Yeah, try to put it all together. Like, wait a second. So eventually, he gives up. He stops the test and says, "Here's who it was. He's the one that did it." And he gives them a name. Yeah, and this is where they address that he's in the gang. That's right. right? That this is a a gang it's related gang murder. Um, and then it's not until we actually meet that, um, what was that kid's name? Colin or something? I, I forget. I didn't write but, it down. Yeah. Um, but they go and talk to him and, uh, he kind of explains this was a gang initiation that this, uh, Howell kid was wrapped up in where they, he hit him with a baseball bat to like sh- show that they shared pain or that they all experienced pain. Some weird, and that it was like an pain. act. Some yeah, some kind of strange act of love. That's what he said. That got him into the the gang, which I you know I remember that being like such a prevalent thing in the nineties. Gangs, not as much anymore. You know, but I used to be in law enforcement. Um, he says gangs are still very yeah. prevalent and responsible for a lot of the crime in major cities, mm. big cities. So according to him, it's still very relevant. Yeah. I would agree with you. You don't hear about it anymore, but I think it's still out there. Yeah, maybe it was all just, you know, I, I heard it all in school uh, in terms of, you know, don't join gangs. This is the kind of stuff that happens to you. But, um, yeah, these idea of like really uh, this idea of really rough initiations and trying to earn the respect of the people in the group, and you know this gang for whatever reason took that like to the extreme, 
to where like no rational person should think that they should be able to hit someone in the head with a baseball bat. And he had no remorse, no guilt, no nothing. Yeah. I think prompting Bolander to say murder ain't what it used to be. Yeah. He you know, he was really again, now he showed his anger much like Munch did with the idiot who took the neutron test. He showed his anger at the killer. That you are just a disabled human being, yeah. really, and which they normally don't, fall. right? Um, but he really, he just let it be known. He didn't like it. Yeah. So there, so they never really connect this, and I don't know if it's purposely because it might be a little too heavy-handed for even me now to draw this conclusion. But when you reflect this, what happened to this Percy kid? He gets hit in the head with a baseball bat trying to join a gang. And dies, and make, he walks himself to the hospital. That's right. And dies there, which is like so tragic and so sad for a fourteen-year-old kid. But when you compare that to his the, the interaction they had with his father, right, like home life that this kid had, that kind of forced him out into to, to be to want to go in the gang in the first place. Right, right, and that's a good point. And that that thing of you know the from the kid's perspective, even when he's confessing to the murder. In his mind, he it's not a murder. It's an accident that happened as a right. byproduct of initiation. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he makes his point. Everybody has pain. And that's what he was trying to, to show. And like, in logic, right? Total dislogic. I can almost see what he's saying. You know what I mean? Like in that, like, they were trying to provide, you know, if he did truly feel a kid, it might have been the only love that this kid was getting in his life. And it just came in the form of a baseball bat. Like how brutal! What a brutal kind of connection to to make there. I thought the events that Bolander witnessed in his anger was tied into the last scene, which I don't know if you want to talk about it all. But yeah. I mean, he's there at the bar with um, that is John Waters at the bar. Yeah, by the way, Baltimore guest. native film director, the famous John Waters. Um, who made many films. Um, but to me, his wife, the murders, it all came and he was just in a bad place. And he even brings back the Elvis thing. Right. And he starts to sing Love Me Tender, doesn't yeah. know all the words. And it is sad. Yeah. He is just so despondent over the loss of his marriage and what could have been and maybe not having kids and the stupid kid he just saw who murdered someone, the poor kid who got killed, the idiot who they faked out. I mean, it's all, it all comes crashing in on him in that last scene. Yeah. Very powerful scene, I thought. You, your heart Really went out to Stan. Yeah, and this is a nice guy, Stanley. Of course, yeah, he's he's one of the like the most human, I think, uh, in terms of it's not um, y you feel for him in a way that you don't feel about the other detectives. Frank is still larger than life, and Bo is almost like flawed beyond repair sometimes. Kay is almost too good, you know. But like Bolander feels like a really full, fully formed, fleshed out person. Yeah. Um, in that scene, one thing that I noticed, and again, I don't, this kind of, almost like that first scene where that attention to detail and you're kind of seeing the world through Kay's eyes, 
there's a guy playing pool that ha- has been purposely put there who looks kind of like Elvis when it's out of focus. He's got the big mutton chops yeah. and hair. Yep. And li- like later day Elvis, like l- further along in his career. And I'm just thinking out loud here that credit to the writers for making Bolander the one to have that scene. Because you're right. We as the viewers have the most empathy and sympathy for him. If it was someone else, you wouldn't necessarily buy it. But you like him. Hi, Stanley. Yeah. Look how nice he was to that young gal who was the witness. He's a nice guy. Yeah. When that with Dr. Bly, he was nice to her son. He puts up with Munch. He's a good detective. Hurting big time. Yeah. Very, very sad yeah. ending. And it's, yeah, and all of those terrible things kind of all come together at once here. And so they, they linger on him singing to himself. John Waters, in his cameo, is like the perfect, like, yeah, right, whatever, buddy. Like, like bartender, like, listening, uh, friendly ear, going to get a tip out of it. But then he just walks away and leaves him there. And he, uh, Bolander starts singing to himself. And it's almost like, it's like, um, not depressing, but you feel, like, embarrassed for him. Because like, he's not singing very well, and it's kind of like this, you know, s- sappy moment. And then it's he stops singing, and you expect all right credits now, and then he starts up again. Like they right. lingered on it like just too long that it became super poignant. I think if they had done that half as long, it would have just been odd. But I I thought the same thing. I said again, and they didn't, and that it got you even worse. Yeah, You're right. like he's not done. Right. He's still feeling it, and you are going to be forced to feel it along with him. And that's what a great show does. Yeah. It brings you in and rips your heart out. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, definitely twist the knife, and they made you feel. They made you feel the way that he was he was feeling. Um, so I guess we should talk about G in this episode. Now, G kind of weaves in and out with all the other uh, detectives throughout this episode. In very short scenes, too. They just say something to him and walk away, this and that. Yeah, so he, uh, I guess he comes into the precinct in the very beginning and he's hungover uh, from the night before and everything in the office is empty, he says. Everything is empty. He tries to get a coffee and a soda. And- Nothing in the fridge. Yeah. And, uh, Oh, you know, no, earlier in the episode, we totally missed the guy who was, um, or is it this, no, oh, yeah, we were the, um, the inspectors beep, beep, beeping all around, um, to test the air quality. Yeah. And, and G even, G says like, all right, are you going to leave everybody alone? Detectives he, alone. he walks into the box while, uh, who's it? Munch was in there, I guess, interrogating someone. Yeah, it was, he was pretty rude. Yeah. And you know, he did this thing that I have seen on this show before, and I have seen absolutely in real life, and it is one of, I realized today, listening to this guy do it, it is one of the most annoying things in the world, is when someone complains about how much money they make for being, like, incompetent at their job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he was like, All right, is this it? Or like, what are you doing? When, why, didn't any, why didn't anyone tell me? And this guy's like, oh, for how much I, for how much I uh, get paid, you know, like, I just, I just came in today, like, whatever. Like, ah, that's so... That is not, uh... But, uh, yeah, so this bumbling boob kind of passes through the office, and then, um... And, yeah, we... He says he's to be alarmed about everything's fine. And everything's fine fine so far. Yeah. And he was saying that because the building is older, like, they, you know, it's... Right. They, They didn't... They didn't do to them what they did with 
to buildings that were a little later. So everything should be fine. Right. And, and G buys it. G, yeah, G's like, all right, fine. As long as you're going to leave my people alone. Detectives cool. alone. And then cut to later, I guess it's, it must be the next day, is when G comes in hungover. And he goes, um, he decides he's going to go upstairs to get a cup of coffee. And as he goes up, it's like all the floors have been abandoned and covered with plastic. Yeah, plastic. And there, and then he gets to this one room, and there's these, you know, hazmat suit individuals. Technicians. Yeah, who are tearing the ceiling apart and pulling things down. And of course, I've I've never seen a crew like this work, but even I knew immediately this is asbestos in this building. Um, and G is pissed. I, I don't think I've ever seen him angrier than he was at that point when yeah. he's talking to Barnfather. Why is that? Why is he so... Is it, I, is it just the asbestos? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think he loves his men, mm. and he's so mad at the system Yeah, because they don't care about these people. He is just livid. I mean, livid. I've never seen G so upset. Yeah. He is crazy. Yeah. Now, he did have that brief conversation with Lewis where they're drinking coffee out by the swings with those kids on the swings. Yeah. And he says to he says to uh, Lewis, he doesn't like change, and that for the 12 years that he was there, the other shift supervisor, who we, we've brought up before, we've seen in other episodes, um, how the two of them, their lives kind of mirrored each other, and they did all the same stuff, and, and now that he doesn't have that anymore, he kind of feels like he's missing something, and and he's resistant to this change. Um, I wonder if that kind of feeds into some of his behavior, too. Because I think even... even, But I, you don't tell your boss, I will bury you. And he actually said that. I wrote that down yeah. as well. Says, and and you, know, you know what's telling, though? Because, you know, Barnfather push, pushes back all the time. He does not push back. G asks for stuff, and you're sure Barnfather's going to say no. And all he said, done. So to me, I almost see G getting madder because he realizes that even Barnfather gets it, that this is really horrible yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, again, the to not read into it too much, like, he has every right to be annoyed by this, even for himself and the people that work for him. Like, this is a, a terrible thing. To not let them know that this is even happening, you know, to almost try to cover it up, I guess, is like a... That's terrible. That's terrible. Um, so, yeah, he uh, he goes off on him. And that brings us to... Oh, the, the next thing we see from G is when uh, Kay and Bayless are in there talking about it in uh, the no, non-smoking center. Right, which we already went over. How yeah. about uh, Mildred and... Um... Crosetti. They have their little story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. They don't have a case in this, right? They have they have no case. They really are talking about Meldrick's talking about his car. And um you know, Crosetti kinda I don't know, mocks him out. Yeah. For for just starting with the engine. Well equating it to having a house, but Instead of having a frame, you just have a toilet on a piece of dirt. Yeah. And you're calling that a Flashing back to, you know, the episode three or episode four, where uh, Crosetti is writing up the complaint about Meldrick and his use of Italian... Slurs. Sl- yeah, slurs. 
we were questioning, like, how well do they each other or whatever? I mean, Meldrick Lewis starts the conversation off by saying, as, you know, you're the closest thing I have to a best friend. Here's my baby. And shows him the picture of the engine. Dumb, dumb Polaroid of an engine. If anyone ever tried to do that to me, I, I would not be able to carry on that conversation. Right. I just don't care enough about cars. But, um, but yeah, so they, uh, uh, and Crosetti kind of throws it in his face too, gives him a hard time about it. You know, this isn't... But, but in true partner fashion, at the end, he gives him a little present, and it's like a rear view or side view mirror that belongs to the car. <laughs> and which was cute, because even though he ripped on him, he realized for Meldrick, this is important, and he gave him a gift. Yeah, yeah, he kind of goes out of his way to do something nice. Which was nice. Yeah, and then... Uh, he, he says, you know, you can pay me back by picking up a picking round up the at tab the waterfront. And buying me, I think he says, buying me, does he say cigarettes? Yeah, buying me cigarettes. and uh, Carrying with the cigarette. And thing. Lewis just talks him all the way down to, I'm going to bum a cigarette for you. <laughs> bum a cigarette from someone else and just give it to you. Um, yeah, what a weird, cute little storyline with those two. Not not too intense. Not a no, whole lot going on. Just no, a nice, very little, light. Yes, very light setup, and then a punchline. Um, compared to some of the other stuff that's happening, which again, I think you know, this episode there are these kind of like bigger themes that are addressed here. Um, it's a lot, a lot like it feels sillier. It feels like a silly uh, kind of episode. Um, it w- minus that one storyline with. Uh, with Bolander and Munch and kind of following that, the the kid, but um, yeah, like even you know Kay is like in rare form in this. Uh, Tim Bayless absolutely is in rare form in this. They're all kind of acting against type. Um, yeah, it it, it 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 was definitely a different episode. Yeah. It had different feel to it, different flow to it. And it, I like even though it was still homicide, right. it had a little different feel. You know, and I think that like I've I know that shows have done that before. Like there's um the in Breaking Bad the scene with the fly, right? It's kind of like this comedic like step away from storyline to just kind of do something interesting with the show. Um, the X Files did that frequently. Kind of had these things that felt like the show was like aware of itself and kind of laughing at itself a little bit. And Homicide for sure does this later down the road with some episodes that just seem like pure silliness, you know, pure joy to write. But um, I, I think even just kind of like stepping away a little bit from the fabric of this gritty universe they've created and did something that was not lighthearted. I don't know if that's the word. Except for the Bowlander storyline. Yeah, it was pretty lighthearted. Yeah, I agree. Good episode, though. I liked it. Yeah, and, and I also think, too, I, I had noticed that it was a little bit longer than the show. It seems to clock in around 42 minutes. This was about 45, 46 minutes. Yeah, so um, I don't know why that is, but uh, I guess fewer commercial breaks or something. Maybe maybe advertisers are pulling their sponsorship from the show at this point. What did you say, Joe, to me before we started about what NBC had said to Homicide at this point? Yeah, so this was originally going to be the last episode of this season. And at this point, there were, I guess, four episodes left, or around this time, there were four episodes left. And NBC said they were going to make a decision on whether they were going to continue the show, pick it up for a second season, or let it be based on the performance of these last four episodes. 
So this, again, was going to be the last episode of the season because the episode that did become the the last one, the Night of the Dead Living, uh, this NBC thought was too slow. Not enough going on in it. Which is like, man, like what a terrible... Right. They, had, terrible they, had, they, had, they had no clue what they what gold they, uh, they had. Yeah. So who do you think was the... I'll, I'll turn tables. Sure. Who was the hero and goat of this episode, respectively? I w- yeah. I would say the hero is Kay Howard. Turn it up, Kay. I think she also, she starts out this episode with the thesis of I'm quitting smoking and has no desire to do it by the end that we can see. That's true. Um, so I would say, uh, yeah, you give that the win to her. Uh-huh. How about the the loser? Oh, man, it's so easy to say uh, Bolander, but I, I'm going to say Bayless because he he really wanted that cigarette and didn't get it. I, without a doubt, I would have said Bayless. He yeah. just caves <laughs> from the beginning. And as far as the hero, I don't know. I would go with uh, G because he's so passionate about sticking up for his people. He doesn't care what the reaction is, and he sticks his neck out. I mean, he knows he's right, but he still does it. So I really admired. But his people don't even know what's going on yet, and he still does that. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking now. Like, G in this episode, uh, Yafet Koto had like a couple monologues that he delivered that were like really uh, intense, yes. awesome, like great, great acting. A lot of memorization there. Um, yeah, all right. I'll accept that. I'll right. accept that as a winner. Joe, if people want to uh, comment, how can they communicate? Well, with they us? can. They can. Uh, at this point, they can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be terrific. Uh, you can reach out to us through email from red to black pod at gmail or you can hit us up on Twitter, uh, red to black pod, on Twitter. So the the Gmail has the word from in the beginning, and the Twitter does not because there were not enough characters on Twitter. So again, as I always say, we um, what have you. So thank you. Joe, that's another episode that went from red to...